Ashley Brock reading Diane Palmer's book, The Maverick, Chapter 2. Alice fell into her bed at the local Jacobsville Motel after a satisfying soak in the luxurious Whirlpool bathtub. Amazing, she thought, to find such a high-ticket item in a motel in a small Texas town. She was told that the film crews from Hollywood frequently chose Jacobs County as a location and that the owner of the motel wanted to keep them happy. It was certainly great news for Alice. She'd never been so tired. The crime scene they found extended for a quarter of a mile down the river. The victim had fought for his life. There were scuff marks and blood trails all over the place. So much for her theory that he traveled to Jacobsville in the trunk of the car they found. The question was, why had someone brought a man down to Jacobsville to kill him? It made no sense. She closed her eyes, trying to put herself in the shoes of the murderer. People usually killed for a handful of reasons. They killed deliberately out of jealousy, anger, or greed. Sometimes they killed accidentally. Often it was an impulse that led to a death, or a series of acts that pushed a person over the edge. All too often it was drugs or alcohol that robbed someone of impulse control that led inexorably to murder. Few people went into an argument or a fight intending to kill someone, but it wasn't as if you could take it back even seconds after a human life expired. There were thousands of young people in prison who would have given anything to relive a single incident where they made a bad mistake. Families suffered for those choices, along with their children. So often it was easy, easy to overlook the fact that even murderers had families, often decent, law-abiding families that agonize over what their loved one had done and paid the price along with them. Alice rolled over restlessly. Her job haunted her from time to time. Along with the coroner and the investigative officer, she was the last voice of the deceased. She spoke for them by gathering enough evidence to bring the killer to trial. It was a holy grail. She took her duty seriously, but also she had to live with the results of the murderer's lack of control. It was never pleasant to see a dead body somewhere in far worse condition than others. She carried those memories as clearly as the family of the deceased carried them. Earlier on, she learned that she couldn't let herself become emotionally involved with the victims. If she started crying, she'd never stop, and she wouldn't be effective in her line of work. She found a happy medium in being, in, being the life of the party at a crime scene, diverted her from the misery of her surroundings, and on occasion helped the crime scene detectives cope as well. One reporter, a rookie, had given her a hard time because of her attitude. She invited him to her office for a close-up look at the world of a real forensic investigator. The reporter had arrived expecting the corpse, already tastefully displayed, to be situated in the tidy, high-tech surroundings that television crime shows had accustomed him to seeing. Instead, Alice pulled the sheet from a drowning victim who'd been in the water three days. She never saw the reporter again. Local cops who recounted the story always with choked back laughter, told her that he turned in his camera the same day and voiced an ambition to go into real estate. Just as well, she thought, the real thing was pretty unpleasant. Television didn't give you the true picture because there was no such thing as smell of vision. She could recall times when she'd gone through a whole jar of Vic's salve trying to work on a drowning victim like the one she'd shown the critical member of the fourth estate. She rolled over again. She couldn't get her mind to shut down long enough to allow for sleep. She was reviewing the merger facts, meager facts, she uncovered at the crime scene, trying to make some sense of, some sort of sense of it. Why would someone drive a murder victim out of the city to kill him? 
Maybe because he didn't know he was going to become a murder victim. Maybe he got into the car voluntarily. Good point, she thought. But it didn't explain the crime. Heat of passion wouldn't cover this one. It was too deliberate. The perp meant to hide evidence. And he had. She sighed. She wished she'd become a detective instead of a forensic specialist. It must be more fun solving crimes than being knee-deep in bodies. And prospective dates wouldn't look at you from a safe distance with that expression of utter distaste, like that gardener in the hardware store this afternoon. What did Dreyer call him? Fowler? Harley Fowler? That was it. Not a bad-looking man. He had a familiar face. I was wondering why. She was sure she'd never seen him before today. She was sure she remembered somebody that disagreeable. Maybe he resembled somebody she knew. That was possible. Fowler. Fowler. No, it didn't ring any bells. She'd have to let her mind brood on it for a couple of days. Sometimes that's all it took to solve such puzzles. Background working of the subconscious. She chuckled to herself. Background working, she thought. Will save me yet. After hours of almost sleep, she got up, dressed, and went back to the crime scene. It was quiet now, without the presence of almost every uniformed officer in the county. The body was lying in the local funeral home, waiting for transport to the medical examiner's office in San Antonio. Alice had driven her evidence up to San Antonio to the crime lab and turned around to the trace evidence people, specifically Longfellow. She entrusted Longfellow with a precious piece of paper that might yield dramatic evidence once unfolded. There had clearly been written, been writing on it. The dead man had gasped it tight in his hand while he was being killed and had managed to conceal it from his killer. It must have something on it that he was desperate to preserve. Amazing. She wanted to know what it was. Tomorrow, she promised herself, their best trace evidence specialist Longfellow would have that paper turned every which way but loose in her lab, and she'd find answers for Alice. She was one of the best CSI people Alice had ever worked with. When Alice drove right back down to Jacobsville, she knew she'd have answers from the lab soon. Restless, she looked around at the lonely landscape, bare in winter. The local police were canvassing the surrounding area for anyone who'd seen something unusual in the past few days or who'd noticed an out-of-town car around the river. Alice paced the riverbank, a lonely figure in a neat white sweatsuit, sweatshirt with blue jeans staring out across the ripples of the water where her sneakers tried to sink into the damp sand. It was cooler today, in the 50s, about normal for a December day in South Texas. Sometimes she could think better when she was alone at the crime scene. Today wasn't one of those days. She was acutely aware of her aloneness. It was worse now. After the death of her father a month ago, he was her last living relative. He'd been a banker back in Tennessee, where she'd taken courses in forensics. The family was from Floresville, just down the road from San Antonio, but her parents had moved away to Tennessee when she was in her last year of high school, and that had been a wretch. Alice had a crush on a boy in her class, but the move killed any hope of a relationship. She really had been a late bloomer. Preferring to hang out in the biology lab rather than think about dating, a bobola under the microscope were so much more interesting. Alice had left home soon after her mother's death, the year she started college. Her mother had been a live wire, a happy and well-adjusted woman who could do almost anything around the house, especially cook. She despaired of Alice, her only child, who watched endless reruns of the TV show Quincy about a medical examiner along with Arctic Perry Mason episodes long before it was popular. 
Alice had dreamed of being a crime scene technician. She'd been an ace of biology in high school. Her science teachers had encouraged her, delighted in her bright enthusiasm. One of them had recommended her to a colleague at the University of Texas campus in San Antonio, who steered her into a science major and helped her find local scholarships to supplement the small amount her father could afford for her. It had been an uphill climb to get that degree and to add to it with courses from far-flung universities when time and money permitted, one being courses in forensic anthropology at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. In between, she'd slodged away with other techs at one crime scene after another, gaining experience. Once in her haste to finish gathering evidence due to a rare prospective date, she slipped up and mislabeled blood evidence that had cost the prosecution staff a conviction. It had been a sobering experience for Alice, especially when the suspect went out and killed a young boy before being rearrested. Alice felt responsible for that boy's death. She never forgot how haste had put the nails in his coffin, and she never slipped up again. She gained a reputation for being precise and meticulous at evidence gathering, and she never went home early again. Alice was almost always the last person to leave the lab or the crime scene at the end of the day. A rubbed-up engine caught her attention. She turned as a cartload of young boys pulled up beside her white man at the river's age. Looky there, a, lady, a, lonely la a lonely lady, one of them called. Ain't she pretty? Sure is. Hey, pretty thing. You like younger men? We can make you happy. You bet, another one laughed. Hey, lady, you feel like a party? Another one cat called. Alice glared. No, I don't feel like a party. Take a hike. She turned back to her contemplation of the river, hoping they'd give up and leave. Aw, that ain't no way to treat prospective boyfriends, one yelled back. Come on up here and lie down, lady. We want to talk to you. More righteous laughter echoed out of the car. So much for patience. She was in no mood for teenagers acting out. She pulled out the pad and pin she always carried in her back pocket, walked up the bank and around to the back of their car. She wrote down the license plate number without being obvious about it. She called in a harassment call and let local law enforcement help her out. But even as she thought about it, she hesitated. There had to be a better way to handle this bunch of loonies without involving the law. She was overreacting. They were just teenagers, after all. Inspection struck, inspiration struck as she emerged at the driver's side of the car. She ruffled her hair, moved closer to the tower. Tow-headed young driver. She leaned down. I like your tires. She drawled with a wide grin. They're real nice and wide, and they have treads. I like treads. She wiggled her eyebrows at him. Like treads? He stared at her. A silly expression went into eclipse. Treads? His voice sounded squeaky. Trying to get tire treads? Yeah, tire treads. She stuck her tongue in and out and grinned again. I really like tire treads. He was trying to pretend that he wasn't talking to a lunatic. Uh, you do? Really? She was enjoying herself now. The other boys seemed even more confused than the driver did. They were all staring at her. Nobody was laughing. She found, no, you don't like treads. You're just humoring me. Okay, if you don't like treads, you might like what I got in the truck, she said, lowering her voice. She jerked her head toward the van. Cleaters her, I might like what you got in the truck. He paired it. She nodded, grinning, widened her eyes until the whites almost gleamed. She leaned forward. I got bodies in there, she said in a stage whisper, and lowered her eyes wide open. Real dead bodies. Want to see?
the driver gaped at her. Then he explained, Dead body. Oh, God. Good Lord, no. He jerked back from her, slammed his foot down on the accelerator, spun sand like dust as he roared back out onto the asphalt and left the rubber trail behind him. She shook her head. Was it something I said? She asked the nearby bush. She burst out laughing. She really did need a vacation, she told herself. Harley Fowler saw the van sitting on the side of the road as he moved a handful of steers from one pasture to another. With the help of Bob, side parks veteran cattle dog, he put the little steers into their new area and closed the gate behind him. A carload of boys roared up beside the van and got noisy. They were obviously hassling the crime scene lady. Harley recognized her van. His pale blue eyes narrowed and began to glitter. He didn't like a gang of boys trying to intimidate a lone woman. He reached into his saddlebag and pulled out his gun belt, stepping down out of the saddle to strap it on. He tied the horse to a bar of the gate and motioned Bob to stay. Harley strode off toward the van. Didn't think he'd have to use the pistol, of course. The threat of it would be more than enough. But if any of the boys decided to have a go at him, he could put them down with his fists. He didn't need a gun to enforce his authority. But if the sight of it made the gang of boys a little more likely to leave without trouble, that was alright, too. He moved into sight just as the back of Alice's moved into sight just at the back of Alice's van. She was leaning over the driver's side of the car. Couldn't hear what she was said. But he could certainly hear what the boy explained as he roared out onto the highway and took off. Alice was talking to a bush. Harley stared at her with confusion. Alice sensed that she was no longer alone as she turned. She leaned, Have you been there there? Have you been there long? She asked hesitantly. Just long enough to see the happy teenage gang take a powder, he replied. Oh, and to hear you asking a bush about why they left, his eyes twinkled. Talk to bushes a lot in your line of work, do you? She was studying him curiously, expecting the low-slung, especially the low-slung pistol in the holster. You on your way to a gunfight and just stopped by to say hello? I was moving steers, he replied. I heard the teenagers giving you all our time. Came to see if you needed any help. Obviously not. Were you going to offer to shoot them for me? She asked. Joel. Never had to shoot any kids, he said with emphasis. You've shot other kinds of people? One or two. He said pleasantly, but this time he didn't smile. She felt chills go down her spine. If her livelihood made him queasy, the way he looked wearing that sidearm made her feel the same way. He wasn't the easygoing cowboy she met in town the day before. He reminded her oddly of Cash Grier for reasons she couldn't put into words. There was cold steel in this man. He had this self-confidence of a man who'd been tested under fire. It was unusual. And a modern man, unless she considered he'd been in the military or some paramilitary unit. I don't shoot women, he said when she hesitated. Good thing, she replied absently. I don't have any bandages. <laughs> he moved closer. She seemed shaken. He scowled. You okay? She shifted uneasily. I guess so. Mind telling me how you got them to leave so quickly? Oh, that? I just asked if they'd like to see the dead bodies in my van. <laughs> he blinked. He was sure he hadn't heard her right. You asked if he prompt. She said, I guess it was a little over the top. I was going to call Haynes Carson and have him come out and save me, but it seemed a bit much for a little cat calling. He didn't smile. Let me tell you something. A little cat calling, if they get away with it, can lead to a little harassment, and if they get away with that, it can lead to a little assault, and even drugs or alcohol aren't involved. Boys need limits, especially at that age. Should have called it in and let Haynes Carson come out. Here and scare the hell out of them. 
Aren't you the voice of experience? I should be, replied. When I was 16, an older boy hassled a girl in our class repeatedly on campus after school and made fun of me when I objected to it. A few weeks later, after she tried and failed to get somebody to do something about him, about him, he assaulted her. She let out a whistle. Heavy stuff. Yes, and the teacher who thought I was overreacting when I told him was later disciplined for his lack of response. He added coldly, We live in different times, she said. Count on it. She glanced in the direction of the car gun. I still have the license plate numbers. Give it to Haynes and tell him what happened. He encouraged her. Even if you don't press charges, he'll keep an eye on them just in case. She studied his face. You like that girl? Yes, she was sweet and kind-natured. She she moved a little closer. She she killed herself, he said tightly. She was very religious. She couldn't live with what happened, especially after she had to testify to it in court and everyone knew. They sealed those files for you. You're real, he shot back. It happened in a small town just outside San Antonio, not much bigger than Jacobsville. I was living there temporarily with a nice older couple and going to school with her when it happened. People who sat on the jury and in the courtroom were all local. They knew her. Oh, she said tough. I'm sorry. You know. How long did the boy get? He was a juvenile. He said Evelyn. He was under 18 when it happened. He stayed in the detention until he was 21 and then turned him loose. Pity. Yes. Shook his head. Shook himself as if the memory had taken him over and he wanted to be free of it. I never heard anything about him after that. I hope he didn't prosper. Was he sorry, do you think? He laughed coolly. Sorry he got caught, yes. I've seen that sort in court, she replied, her eyes darkening with a member. Cocky and self-centered, contemptuous of everybody around them, especially people in power. Power corrupts, she began. And absolute power corrupts absolutely, she finished for him. Lord, I, Lord action. She decided belatedly. Smart gent, he nodded toward her. Any new thoughts on the crime scene? She shook her head. I like to go there alone and think sometimes I get ideas. I still can't figure out how he died here when he was from San Antonio. Unless he came voluntarily with someone and didn't know they were going to kill him when they arrived. Or he came down here to see somebody, he returned, and was ambushed. Wow, she said softly, turning face. You're good. There's a faint, rooty color on his eye cheekbones. Thanks. No, I mean it, she said when she saw his expression. That wasn't sarcasm. He relaxed a little. We got off to a bad start, and it's my fault, Alex admitted. Dead bodies make me nervous. I'm okay once I get started documenting things. It's the first sight of it that upsets me. You caught me at a bad time at the hardware store. I didn't mean to embarrass you. Nothing embarrasses me, he said easily. I'm sorry, just the same. He relaxed a little more. She frowned as she studied his handsome face. He really was good looking. You look so familiar to me, she said. I can't understand why. I've never met you before. They say we all have a doppelganger, he mused. Someone who looks just like us. Maybe that's it, she agreed. San Antonio is a big city for all its small town atmosphere. We've got a lot of people. You must resemble someone I've known, I've seen. Probably. She looked again at the crime scene. I hope I can get enough evidence to help convict somebody of this. It was a really brutal murder. Brutal murder. I don't like to think of people who can do things like that being loose in society. He was watching her, heading up her nice figure and her odd personality. She was unique. He liked her. 
He wasn't admitting it, of course. How did you get into forensic work, he asked. Wasn't all those crime shows on TV. It was the Quincy series, she confessed. I watched reruns of it on TV when I was a kid. It fascinated me. I liked him, too, but it was the work that caught my attention. He was such an advocate for the victims. Her eyes became soft with reminiscence. I remember when evidence I collected solved the crime. It was my first real case. The parents of the victims came over and hugged me after the prosecutor pointed me out to them. I always went to the sentencing scene. If I can get away in cases I worked, that was the first time I realized how important my work was. She grinned wickedly. The convicted gave me the finger on his way out of the courtroom with the sheriff's deputy. I grinned at him. Felt good. Really good. He laughed. It was a new sound. And she liked it. Does that make me less spooky? She asked, moving a step closer. Yes, it does. You think I'm, you know, normal? Nobody's really normal, but I know what you mean, he said. And he smiled at her, a genuine smile. Yes, I think you're okay. She cocked her head up at him, and her blue eyes twinkled. Would you believe that? Extraordinary handsome Hollywood movie stars actually call me up for dates. Do they really? He dropped. No, but doesn't it sound exciting? He laughed again. She moved another step closer. What I said about not purchasing you if you were on sale in a groom shop? I didn't really mean it. There's a nice ring in that jewelry shop in Jacobsville, she said dreamily. A man's wedding ring. She peered up through her lashes. I could buy it for you. He pursed his lips. You could. Yes, and I noticed that there's a minister at the Methodist church. Are you Methodist? Not really. Neither am I. Well, there's a justice of the peace in the courthouse. She marries people. He was just listening now. His eyes were white. If you like the ring and it fit, and if it fit, we could talk to the justice of peace. They also have licenses. He burst his lips again. Whoa. He said after that. I only met you yesterday. I know. She blinked. What does that have to do with getting married? I don't know you. Oh, okay. I'm 26. I still have most of my own teeth. She displayed them. I'm healthy and athletic. I like to knit, but I can hunt too. And I have guns. I don't like spinach, but I love liver and onions. Oh, and I'm a virgin. She smiled broadly. He was breathless by the stump. He stared at her intently. It's true, she added when he didn't comment. She scowled. When I don't, well, I don't like diseases, and he can't look at a man and tell if he has one. She hesitated, frowned, worriedly. He don't have any. No, I don't have any diseases, he said shortly. I'm fatitious about women. What a relief, she said with a huge eye. Well, that covers all the basics. Her blue eyes smiled up at him. She battered her long black eyelashes. So when do we see the justice of the peace? Not today, you plan. I'm washing Bob. Bob? He pointed toward the cattle dog, who was still sitting at the pasture gate. He whistled. Bob came running up to him, wagging her long, silky tail and hassling. She looked as if she was always smiling. Hi, Bob. Alice said softly and bent to offer a hand, which Bob smelled. Then Alice shook the silky head. Nice boy. Girl, he corrected. Bob's a girl. She blinked at him. Mr. Park said if Johnny Cash could have a boy named Sue, he can have a girl dog named Bob. He's got a point, she agreed. She rolled for Bob's fair affectionately. You're a beaut, Bob, she told the dog. She really is. Best cattle dog in the business, and she can get into places in the brush that we can't on horseback to flush out strays.
Do you come from a ranching family? She asked absently as she shook the dog. Actually, I didn't know much about cattle when I went to work for Mr. Parks. He had one of his men train me. Wow, nice guy. He is dangerous, but nice. She lifted her head at the use of the word and frowned slightly. Dangerous? Do you know anything about Epscott and his outfit? The mercenary, she nodded. We all know about his training camp down here. A couple of our officers use his firing range. He made it available to anyone in law enforcement. He's got friends in our department. Well, he and Mr. Parks and Dr. Mike, Mike Steele were part of a group who used to make their living as mercenaries. I remember now, she explained. There was a shootout with some of the drug lord Lopez's men a few years ago. Yes, I was in it. She looked out of breath. Brave man to go up against those bozos. They carry automatic weapons. I noticed. That was said with a draw expression worth a hundred words. She searched his eyes with quiet respect. Now I really want to see the justice of the peace. I'd be safe anywhere. He laughed. I'm not that easy. You haven't even bought me flowers or asked me out to a nice restaurant. Oh dear. What? I don't get paid until Friday. And I'm broke, she said sorrowfully. She made a face. Well, maybe next week. Or we can go Dutch. He chuckled with pure delight. I'm broke, too. So next week? We'll talk about it. She grinned. Okay. Better get your van going, he said, holding out a palm up. Hand and looking up. We're going to get a rain shower. You could be stuck in that soft sand when it gets wet. I could see you. See you. She took off running for the van. Life was looking up, she thought happily. End of chapter 2.